In our culture, we learn through stories. But what if the stories we hear don't match the reality of life? What if the stories we hear every day that tell us how to write the narrative of our lives actually lead us to a false narrative? My name is Tim Kroll, and on this podcast, you will hear real stories. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Real people sharing the hard times, the bends in the roads along life's journey. If you're ready to join a community of other real people who are writing the narrative of their lives, then go to narrative.live and join the community. Now let's dive into today's show. Welcome to the Narrative Podcast. Thanks for joining. I've got a very special guest today, and this is going to be a little bit different because Tim is usually the one uh, hosting and asking the questions, but today I get to be the host. So we We've got Tim Kroll. He's my good friend and co-founder of Narrative on, and we're going to hear a little bit about his story today. I've got all kinds of stories I can tell about Tim, but I, but I won't. And some we're not going to tell on the podcast. (laughs) And many that we're not going to tell on the podcast. I can think of one in particular that I would love to tell that the audience would uh, get a kick out of, but I'm not going to do that today. Maybe, maybe further down the road. So I wanted to introduce Tim He's actually, like I said, a great friend, uh, a really, really creative person and brilliant business person. I, I know he he advises a lot of businesses. He's counseled me and uh, business stuff before. He's he's famous. He's been on TV with uh, Lego <laughs> Masters. I mean, he's got a, a vast background of experience. And, uh, you know, Tim, I guess I would just I'm going to butcher your your introduction or your 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 your, your um <laughs> your background. Is there anything you want to share for context of? No, I think the biggest, I I think the biggest thing, and I have always hated bios because everybody actually writes the bio. And I I have come to really not like bios because it just talks about all of the high points. And it feels like it's almost contrary to what it is that we are establishing here about the real stories, you know, the whole narrative of what we're doing. And I almost feel like sometimes when we give a bio, it's not the whole story. It's not the real narrative. It's just these highlights that we see in our lives. And I think everybody has had highlights. I, I, I truly do. And and some, some people look at certain highlights bigger than others, um, you know, and some of it is like, shoot, I mean, like, and this is what it, it almost feels embarrassing when we're talking about how real things are. But the, the reality is I, I did. I built an e-com company that was bringing in $15 million a month. And I was on TV and all of these things that everybody's like, oh, isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool and fun and great? And then like, yeah, but you don't know the rest of the story. You don't know (laughs) all of the pain and the times when I'm standing in the shower bawling my eyes out because I don't know what to do or not being able to put food on the table or, you know, like all of those other things that happen in our lives that we typically don't talk about. So, I I mean, bios are good. Bios are great, but it's not the whole thing. It's not what we're really trying to accomplish. So I guess we just jump into it from there. So. No, I totally agree. And that's why uh, I'm excited about this conversation today. So I'm going to, you know, kind of kick it off in the same format. If if anyone has listened in before, they're going to kind of hear a similar theme here. But so I, and I'm curious on where you want to take it, because obviously the stories that we grew up with, they touch a lot of different areas of your life. Right. So yeah. I guess my my first question is what what are some stories or things that you were told or you believed, you know, in your younger days growing up. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is there's a lot of things you know, we call them stories or things that we were told, but I found that I gained more of my belief system from watching the actions and watching what was there 
and coming up with my own core of, hey, this is how life works. Nobody told me that that's what I was supposed to do. I jumped at a early age, at a young age, I jumped to certain conclusions. So let me just give you a couple of examples. I'll give you the background as far as the history. Um, you know, I grew up in a very, uh, I would call it a strict home. We were very Baptist. It was very much about you have to look a certain way, act a certain way. You got to, you know, follow some rules. You got to do these things. And so it was very, I'll call it legalistic. That that would be the best way to, to put that. And, and growing up in a legalistic home, there's a lot of pressures and a lot of things that come along with that legalistic environment. And you learn very quick, well, I should say, I learned very quickly how to act the proper way when everybody was watching and how to understand where people were at and what was going on. You know, and then you add on top of that, and back in those days, I mean, both of my parents worked. And so we were what we would be considered latchkey kids. Uh, and in those situations, when you're a latchkey kid, at a very young age, you have to take on a lot more responsibility. You have to take on a lot more things that have to get accomplished because, quite frankly, your parents aren't there to get them done. And myself, being the oldest, one of the things that was placed upon me, at a, I mean, it was pretty young. I was in second grade when things started getting placed on me. So I, I entered kindergarten at five. So we're talking seven years of age, eight years of age. Very quickly, I had to start watching out for my sister. My sister, then everybody's two years, right? So second grade, I had to start watching out for my sister. She started into kindergarten. Now, fast forward, third, fourth grade. So now we're at at nine, age nine. My brother's now entering kindergarten. So now I have to watch out for him. Right? And that was just an expectation. That was something that was placed upon us as uh, the oldest child is you need to take care of your brother and your sister. And then all the way up through, even through high school, well, we lived close enough. We went to a private school because that was where we were going. And all the way through that, Again, because we were latchkey kids, it was, Tim, you need to make sure that your brother and sister get home. Tim, you need to make sure your brother and sister get the chores done. Tim, you need to make sure that they've got a snack when they get home. Tim, you got to, like, all of these responsibilities were just placed on me. So, quite frankly, I had to grow up fast, and I had to take on those responsibilities, and I had to, you know, make sure that they were being taken care of. That led to a belief in my own life, and again, nobody told me this, and in fact, if I would talk to my parents, they would say, no, that's not the way it is. But this is just the assumption that I pulled on is that I now had to take care of my brothers, my, my brother and my sister. In other words, I was responsible for their actions, for all the decisions that they made, for everything that they did, both wrong or right. It was my fault. And uh, I carried that with me for quite some time. And the other thing, too, and I want to layer these on because these are really important components. One is that taking on responsibility very quickly. The other thing that I that I had as far as a formation, uh, I would call it a false belief is my parents also worked with a bunch of singles. Now, this is not their fault, and I don't really want to shed bad light on them, but it was just a conclusion that I came to when I was, again, in those formative years, is they would promise me like, hey, we're going to take you out and we're going to go fishing, or we're going to go hunting, or we're going to go do this, or we're going to go do that. All of those promises never, ever happened. Not not a one of them. I mean, I take that back. Maybe one or two did, but the vast majority of them, they never happened. And so that created this idea, this concept. Now, so layer these two things together. One is I have to take care of my kids. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip there. Um, I had to take care of my brother and my sister. And then number two is I had to, I very quickly learned that I couldn't rely on anybody else because when they would tell me that they would do something, they didn't do it. And mm -hmm. so that created this belief stepping into my adult life of one, I'm responsible for everything and everybody. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Two is I can't trust anybody else to do anything. Like I can't trust anybody. If it's going to happen, it's going to be on me. 
And those were two of the biggest beliefs that I had that I took out of my childhood. I mean, there's a lot of other things that we could kind of go into. Um, Some of it was, hey, you need to be a pastor. You need to go to college. You need to get a job. You need to like, and all of those things were contrary to some of the what I would feel like my core calling is or what I would feel like. Cause I, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've always done stuff, sold baseball cards. I mean, I, man, I would take cards to school and I would, <laughs> Oh, I, I could tell you stories upon stories of how I've sold stuff, whether it was popcorn or, uh, you know, boosters for a school or whatever. I mean, like, it's just was crazy. And I never had any help doing that. It was all just me out knocking on doors. So yeah, really. So it, it sounds like, uh a lot like you said a lot of responsibility early on and the concept of you're on your own though because you can't count on anybody else to to do what they tell you they're going to do yeah how how would you like how how would you say that began to play out so you know once you go out into the real world kind of thing or you know further on in life how did you see that uh you know, play out in in your life, that sense of I'm responsible for everybody's the, you know, actions and, and I'm on my own because I can't, you know, I can't count on anybody to do what they say they're going to do. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it really started kind of this toxic circle of me attempting to be able to please everybody and try to do what they want. And yet at the same time, manipulate situations and scenarios again, because I learned at that age, I mean, I didn't really have any true guidance on what leadership was or how to be a leader or what what the difference was. But I, I can tell you this. I'm hesitant to use this word because I know my parents are going to be listening. So I'm sorry, mom and dad. But at the same time, I think it's really important. There was definitely trauma that we went through as kids. Now, it wasn't intentional, and I'm not even trying to shed any bad light on that part of it. But there was definitely things that happened in there where I had to learn very quickly how to present in a way and manipulate the scenario to my favor. And so a lot of what I did, you know, entering into the adulthood aspect is I I knew that I can manipulate people really well because I could read the emotions in the room. I could understand their actions and I could, and again, all of that is a train, I, I call it training, but the training from even as young as seven, where I was trying to take care of Todd and Teresa. And, you know, through all of that, I, I was, I had to learn you know, emotional intelligence. I had to actually be aware of everything that was going around. To this day, though, just I I need to put this in there. Like to this day, I am extremely grateful that I went through that. I mean, like that has given me years of experience now (laughs) stepping into consulting. Like I I can see there's so much benefit to that because I am, uh, it sounds arrogant, but it's the same, it's the truth. I have, I have literally probably 20 plus years experience on anybody else, even though I'm still pretty young as an adult, because I just started so young, right? So yeah, so carrying all that in, um, stepping into the adult aspect of life, I mean, like, it, it really, it, it, I was manipulating a lot of people. And, you know, there's always these things that kind of, and I've had several, I don't want to call them aha moments, but they were like this smack you in the face, knock you down kind of situations. I started coming out of college, I owned my own business. I didn't understand any of the processes. I didn't understand how to take care of the financial side of things. I didn't understand how to manage employees. There's a lot of things I just didn't understand, but shoot, nobody's going to tell me because it's on me, right? That's the belief. I've got to learn how to be able to do this and I've got to just push through it. Well, it ended up that we ended up losing two houses. I had a rental. We lost that to the bank. I lost the other house to the bank. I had my car repossessed or my van, my work van repossessed. There's a lot of things that just were not good. And that led us to move from Meadville, small town Meadville, up into Rochester, New York. And that was the very first catalyst of taking 
when I had a small town mentality and seeing like there was a bigger world out there. Uh, that was the very first component of, of allowing me to see the bigger world. The other thing that happened at the same time is I was working for a company that was doing sales. And I clearly, clearly remember this. I remember that where I was sitting and I sold this, these windows to this guy. And I went back because we had to, at that time we had to collect the checks. And he looked at me across the table. And he said, you got me. I signed on the dotted line. I, according to New York law, agreement is good after the four days. Mm. You got me, but you'll never get me again. And that was that was like the beginning of the end, in, in yeah. essence, because it, it was it was a hard smack in the face that, Tim, if you are going to continue down this path, you know, you, you might be able to make a lot of money. I was one of the top sales guys. I was closing at 40, 50 percent on things that should have never been closed on. Uh, we were closing on one in one night type situations. And it was a smack in the face for me because it made me look at it and say, is this how I want to live my life? Where I'm constantly manipulating people, burning my relationships, and, and potentially even burning my own family relationships. And like there was a lot of things that I had to go through in Rochester that were not easy. Uh, we we went from um, almost a 5,000 square foot home down to about 1,500 square foot home. Uh, and it was even tough. I mean, like there was just a lot of uh, the dead aspect. Uh, I mean, I can't even tell you how many things that were going on at that time, but it was, it was probably the hardest time in my life, but I would also say it was the best time in my life because it, it changed the path. It changed the journey that I was on and the pain that I felt from not being able to provide for the family, from losing the house, from uh, everything that I felt was like my ego aspect was just gone. The houses, the cars, the business, the everything was just pretty much gone. And I didn't know really where to place my value. My value has always been on what I can accomplish as an individual. That's where I really placed a lot of my self-confidence and my value. And I realized, and I had really some really great people come into my lives in Rochester. Matt Guerin was one of them, but they were able to actually step in and say, okay, let's, let's rethink how you're actually doing things. You've got a lot of core talent. You've got a lot of great skills, but what are you doing to be able to impact people? And they didn't use those words. That's what I'm using. But how, what are you doing to actually impact people and get things on the street? So they started helping me do that. They allowed me to grow through some of the challenges and some of the things that were going on. And honestly, if it wasn't for them, I, I wouldn't be in this position. And frankly, I don't know if Melissa and I would be married. I don't know if I don't know what would have happened, but it, it definitely was uh, what I would classify as an intervention, even though it wasn't officially like, hey, let, let's intervene here. But it was definitely um, God had a, an interesting way of taking away all the things that I was relying on and saying, OK, you're going to trust me. And even to this day, he's still he's still kind of going through that. So can you. So it sounds like that was definitely a turning point when you guys moved. Can you talk about that? process? I mean, I don't imagine that it was overnight, like, oh, we, we move or now I've got this <laughs> person that is, you know, like a, a good couple of good people that are accounts, you know, like uh, talking to me and working through this. I mean, can you give any context on like, what, what did that look like? How long so that, did it yeah, take? So when was I, it easy the, or hard, you know? No, it was like, not yeah. easy. In fact, it was... <sighs> it was the craziest aspect of this. So first of all, obviously I lost a lot of the businesses. We lost our homes, couldn't pay the mortgage. I mean, I'm struggling here just to even, <laughs> so during that time, I actually started playing poker and that's how I actually fed. And that's what we did. So I would go up to the poker room and I would play cards and then I would come back with the cash. And that's how we actually bought groceries for the next week. 
Uh, it wasn't probably the healthiest thing, but again, because of the manipulation, I could read people really well. I knew how to figure out what their cards were. I could tell when to bet and when not to bet. So for about a year, a year and a half, that's how I paid the bills was through playing poker. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little piece in there. <laughs> but I got a job from this company that was in Rochester, and they were trying to expand down in Pennsylvania. And I started selling down in Pennsylvania area. And then they just they made a decision to close down the Pennsylvania division. And they wanted me to move back up to Buffalo. So for, and I can't remember how long this was, but it was approximately six to nine months. I would leave Monday morning, travel up to Buffalo or Rochester, depending on where I was doing the sales at that time, and do sales, uh, like in-home type sales, all the way till Saturday morning. And I would leave like Saturday afternoon to come back home. So I only saw my family Saturday evening and then Sunday. And then Monday I was gone again. Hmm. And we did that for a long time until we got to the point where they said, well, we really would like you guys to move up here. Now, I I mean, there's all kinds of reasons and why and whatever, but I made the decision. And again, it was partly out of arrogance. It was partly out of pride. It was partly out of, I'm going to just do this and I'm going to fix it. But it was also like I, for somehow, for some reason, I just knew that this was the right way to go. I knew that this is what I had to do. And I was the only one that thought this is, this was a good idea or this was the right decision. Melissa, my wife, she was absolutely 100% against it. The kids were young enough. They really didn't pay attention. My parents were against it. I mean, like I didn't have anybody at that point in time that supported this decision or that could confide or say that that was the right thing to do. So again, by the grace of God, he allowed me to think of that, that that was the right way. So we went through a lot of, I guess it was truly marital times where we were really struggling. We had the two boys, Micah and Zach. And then when we moved up into Rochester, that was the the beginning of some really hard emotional aspects. We found out we were pregnant with Ellie. Um, that was a big surprise because we hadn't planned on that. My nephew, who was nine, passed away at that exact same time. So there was a lot of weight. My wife actually went out with her sister when he passed. And that was, again, there was just a lot of things that just kind of laid on us all of a sudden. It just broke me down to the point where it's like, okay, what is it that I really want to get out of life? I'm on my own here. And everything that I've done up until this point has gotten me to this stage of there's nobody else around that you can talk to. There's nobody else that you can rely on. There's nobody else that like, it's it just, it sucked. I don't know how to, it was probably the most lonely. The, it was the loneliest time in my life. And again, some of those times, you know, you just sit there and it's just like, I, I couldn't sleep at night. You kind of kill it with, for me, my adrenaline is people. And so mm -hmm. if I'm around people, I can kind of kill the thoughts and the pain. So I just tried to stay around people as much. But if I was ever alone, that was not that was not really a healthy time because I would sink back into that despair, that anxiety. I would say people were very much like what people find, like if you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or any of those kinds of things, I would say people really kind of my addiction. And again, it was really more from the aspect of what can I get from them more so than how can I help and how can I influence? So, uh, yeah, I, we could probably talk an hour on some of the things that were just going on that aspect, but that was truly out of everything. That was the turning point. That was the aspect that shifted the direction of my life. Sounds like you definitely had a lot of those stories when you were young that developed and carried over and you kind of practiced them out, right? You said you got really good at manipulation, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways. And then, and then you come to this turning point. And, you know, kind of realize, start to realize that some of these things that 
either you told yourself or you you absorbed from observation or whatever aren't 100% true so so talk about what you how, how did you reframe that or what what kind of new new narratives did you take on when you you got to this point you realized that you know things weren't the way that you wanted them to be and you wanted to make a change like yeah what happened yeah i, I would say it's a lot of stumbling that's the easiest way for me to explain it. Uh, I mean, <laughs> since Rochester, it's been a lot of stumbling, failing forward kind of an idea aspect of it, because that's truly what has happened over. And I would classify it. So that that move happened about 20 years ago. So for the last 15 years, it's been a lot of stumbling. <laughs> ended up getting another job. They ended up moving us to Philadelphia. From Philadelphia, I was working in a corporate. Again, we were very successful. We had a product that we got into a lot of really cool like Costco's and Home Depot's and Lowe's. And we did a lot of really cool things there. Well, the, my idea was, okay, now I'm set because I'm working for a corporation and, you know, they got the 401ks, they got the golden parachutes, they got all that kind of stuff. And then they sold off the the division and they said, oh, by the way, you're out of a job. And I'm like, okay, so my way didn't work, which was, you know, the entrepreneurship. So I'm like, okay, maybe everybody's right. So the second way that I go, is I get a job at a corporation, you know, getting paid good money, you know, everything's, you know, like really, really good from that part of it. They sell that part off and suddenly I'm back on square one again. And Melissa and I look at each other. We're obviously doing a lot better at this point in time. And we're like, okay, we don't want to go into debt. That's number one. Number two is we really don't like Philadelphia because it's a city. So what are we going to do? So we made the decision to move in with our parents. And that was again, about 10 years ago by that time. Maybe actually it's been longer now that I think about it. It's probably around 12 years ago or so. And so we moved in. So I'm like approximately, you know, late 30s, early 40s, somewhere in that time frame where we I've actually moved back in with my in-laws and we're here in Michigan. And we thought, that okay, sounds it's like be- fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story right there. It's a whole nother one there. <laughs> you know, but it's embarrassing because here you are. And again, look at my my core beliefs is like I'm supposed to take care of everybody, I'm supposed to be responsible, I'm supposed to provide. And here I can't do it. I mean, like everything's taken away. Nope, that was no fault of my own because the company just decided to sell it. And they said, oh, you, you're you're out. We don't need you. I'm like, oh, okay. So two core things happened there. One is the fact that, yes, I had been following my own path because I thought I knew what was right. Two is, okay, my dad and the society and everybody else has said, you know, you need to get a job and everything's going to be just fine. And that didn't happen. So I followed two different paths there, one that I had created, the one that the world was telling me. And now I'm like, what the heck? You know, like none of this stuff is true. Uh, So now it's like, okay, we'll we'll move up to Michigan here. We'll live with my in-laws. And basically, I got to figure out life again. So again, more stumbling, more turns, more challenges. And then that's when I picked up, started working for uh, Sunfrog. And we grew that business on the e-com. That was at the front of all of the crazy I would call it the wild west of the e-com business stuff. And we that's we started selling t-shirts and we did, I got it up to about 15, I think it was 15 million on an average month. And then during the holiday seasons, like November, December, we were probably stretching, getting close to 20, 25 million in t-shirts, which wow. is insane. I mean, like it's just <laughs> that's a lot of t-shirts. <laughs> uh, yeah, but okay, so that's one side of the story, and that's really the fun side. That's what the bio says. The other side of it is the fact that. I was working with somebody who basically was narcissistic and they ended up pulling, we had an agreement. They were going to pay me a percentage of the sales, blah, blah, blah. That's that's how we work. And they kept pulling that back, pulling that back until finally it was like, well, I know I said I was going to pay you X, but here's a 99% pay cut. And oh, by the way, you can't work for anybody else. You can't do anything else in this field. 
So I got slapped with a lawsuit. I got slapped with no money coming in. I had a a restraining order that said I can't work and in that industry. Now, granted, the judge threw all of this stuff out and it's all taken care of. But I mean, it was freaking hard times going through all of that. Uh, So, yeah, again, more stumbling, more figuring it out. And about that time, I ran into a guy named Tony Grubmeyer. Man, that guy, he gave he gave me a breath of life that I I needed at that time. And it was a scenario or situation when I remember I was on a call with him and he said, Hey, I want you to do this. And I want you to do this. And for 24 hours, I, I thought about it, thought about it. And I called him back the next day and said, I can't do that. There's no way that I can do that. And he said, Tim, that's just an excuse. <laughs> and it was kind of like a, like I said, it was a breath. It was a little bit of a slap in the face, but it was, he was not going to let me get away with crap. He was not going to allow me to manipulate him. That truly was I would say the final turn, like the home stretch of being able to say, here's how you can get your life back together. I mean, there was a lot of other things. I, I I talk about this when I talk about breakdowns and things like that. I was I was literally on the edge of a nervous breakdown right around that that time frame. I was on the edge of a nervous breakdown and I, I, I was so mentally drained, physically, spiritually, I was drained. Socially, I was just inept at that point because I just had been reeling for so long that I just didn't know how to handle it. But Tony just he was patient. He was kind. He was, he was able to say the right thing at the right time. I mean, just be able to kind of lead me out of some of that darkness. And like I said, I'll forever, ever be grateful for him. And then that has now led me on a path of, I call it self-discovery, but it's really more about self-work. In other words, what are you doing to improve you yourself, your core? What are your values? What, how are you establishing? And then what is really, and, and we talk about this and the reason why we have the narrative is we're founding what our stories are. We're responsible for creating that. And ultimately that that's the the heartbeat of where I'm at is what is it that I'm doing and living and saying that's going to leave an impact on others. I've had all of these stumbles, these falls, these hard knocks. They're useless unless I actually apply them, unless I make the changes, unless I actually share a lot of the crap that I went through because I know that there's other people that are in those positions every day Every week yeah. I get phone calls or talk to guys that are in those exact same spots. And I'm like, dude, I feel you, man. I can feel that pain. I feel the weight of the world that's on your shoulders. Anyway, I I, I could just go on like we can just keep talking. <laughs> but I don't, where do you want to go? Well, I, I think one thing that I'm curious about or I, I know that happens to me is is some of those stories. And I'm sure for you, too, some of those stories that were kind of ingrained early you you're still going to run into situations where you might react or feel yep. like. I am on my own. I can't trust this person. No, you know, I'm going to have to do it myself. All those things that you were kind of taught. How do you handle those now? Like what's a practical yep. way? Because I'm sure there's still a reaction point where you're you're triggered and you're like, oh, yep. here's that same story again. Yep. Yep. But what do you do with what do you do with that now? So uh, to me, it's like I, it's not a you don't switch this thing. It's not light switch. It's not on and off, right? It, it's definitely something that you you work on. I feel that I have success and I believe this and people have success when you shorten that time frame. And what I mean by that is there are triggers, there are things, there are ways that we live. It's amount it's a, the amount of time that we continue down that path. So in other words, if something triggers me and I don't recognize that, that means I'm going to create that pattern, I'm going to create that habit and I'm going to continue down that path. If I'm aware of it, and some of that awareness has to come from looking at our past, not that we're looking at it from a, a negative and, oh, boo-hoo's me, 
But understanding some of the past and the way that we've actually worked that way, recognizing those triggers or recognizing those circumstances and events more quickly now seeing our reactions and the way that we're acting rather than allowing that to just go on unnoticed. Because we get in those habits, we get in those those patterns, and it's truly a perspective. And that's when outside help comes in. Uh, for me, it was Tony. And when outside help comes in and says, have you thought about looking at it this way? Have you changed your perspective? Did you take off those glasses? And uh, I, whether they're rose-colored glass, I don't care what, did you take off those glasses and put this other other set of glasses on and look at the world in a different way? And suddenly now it's like, oh, dude, I never saw that. I never saw that part of it, or I never saw. So it's really more what I would classify as recognition and shortening the time from that trigger point to recognition of this is the path that I would normally go. And this is how I'm choosing to go. Right. Because a lot of our habits and our, our reactions are all kind of just a way of living. We don't really make decisions. We don't really notice that we're doing them. We just kind of fall right back into those routines. If we do that, then that's a, a life not really worth living because it's just habits and routines. And we repeat the same mistakes because we don't learn from them. But the key is, is that recognition, is that perspective and shortening that time from that trigger to when I can make and choose the actions or reactions that I want for that. Gotcha. No, I, I agree. Or I guess one, one question I, I get a lot, and I think you do as well, is for the men and women that are listening to this, that are saying, I don't have anybody in my life that I can draw that outside perspective from. How do I get that? How do like, I think that's a, that's a, a challenge. How, what, what would be your advice for that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is you have to develop your social network because that that is key. So there's two aspects of this. One is you have to recognize and find mentors that you resonate with or a coach that you resonate with. And two is you have to find people that are on your level. And then mm -hmm. you have to really, truly start getting that relationship has to be built. Like you and I, we've been meeting for years now. And that's a like, I feel like we're really on the same level with a lot of things. I mean, there's some stuff that you're better at than I am too, but there's, there's this aspect that we, we can share a lot of things that are really, that we're struggling with. Yeah. Okay. So any last thoughts? I know we're, we're about at time here. I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, anything that you want to share with the, uh, I guess I got two things, any last thoughts and also how would somebody get a hold of you if they wanted to reach out? No. So to reach out, just, you can just search me, uh, my name, Tim Kroll, Tim T-I-M and then C-R-O-L-L. Um, I've got a website. You can find me on LinkedIn, social medias, literally wherever you're at, I'm probably there. So just message me or send me an email. You can find it through the website. I mean, as far as last thoughts, I, I would say this, it's to find your true narrative, to find your story takes work, but it's worth it. It's a lot of hard knocks and it's a lot of stumbling, but it's so worth it to be able to choose to live a life that is worthwhile and be fulfilled and to actually walk down that path there's there's truly nothing like it. It's hard. It's not. It's it's easier to stay in the comfort zone. It's hard to to step out and grow, but it's worth it. It's worth every minute of it. And it's better to walk with people than to try to walk it alone. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Tim. I know it's it's not actually as easy as it may sound to share a story. So I appreciate you uh, being authentic and and uh, you know telling us telling us part of your story today. So thanks everyone for tuning in and uh, we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the author of your story? 
Take the next step now at www.narrative.live and enter your details to connect with a community of others just like you that are tired of living under the false narrative. Finding your true story and writing your narrative, it will give you clarity, freedom of your day, and it just might change your life forever.